Welcome to Axis Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In late 1940s America, few writers commanded attention like Bernard DeVoto. Alongside his brilliant wife and editor Avis, DeVoto was a firebrand of American liberty, free speech, and public lands. When a corrupt band of lawmakers led by Senator Pat McCarran sought to quietly cede millions of acres of national parks and other western lands to logging, mining, and private industry, the devotees entered the fight of their lives. Bernard and Avis built a broad grassroots coalition to sound the alarm. Julia Paul Child, Ansel Adams, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., Alfred Knopf, Adlai Stevenson, Wallace Stegner were among that coalition. In This America of Ours, a new book out, journalist Nate Schweber uncovers the forgotten story of this progressive alliance that altered the course of 20th century history, saved American wilderness and our country's most fundamental ideals from ruin. And uh, Nate Schweber uh, joins us. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Tom. It's a real pleasure to talk with you. Uh, appreciate you being with us. Um, my first question is a simple one. Uh, pronunciation, Bernard or Bernard? You know, uh, I talked to uh, uh, Bernard and Avis's last surviving son, Mark DeVoto, who is 82 years young, and he told me it is pronounced the English way, Bernard. Bernard, okay. Yeah. And I, I believe that's how Avis always pronounced it, right? Yeah, right mm-hmm, book, yeah, correct. I, but to, you know, to their friends, and they had lots of friends, he was known as Benny. So ah. uh, people that knew him socially called him Benny. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, I'll pronounce it Bernard. That's good to have it straight cool. straight from the family, then. That's uh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, we did a program on this uh, episode of this program in March, uh, talking with some historians, uh, a celebration of the life of Bernard DeVoto. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the one of the running themes uh, through that conversation was uh, that, that uh, very well known in his lifetime, but much less well-known now, even in Utah, even in Ogden, his yeah. hometown. Yeah, yeah. I, You know, the subtitle of my book is Bernard and Avis DeVoto and the Forgotten Fight to Save the Wild. Um, you know, Bernard was uh, a, a very, you know, he had very controversial opinions. He stated them very forcefully. So I think one of the things that happened over the decades is that, you know, anybody that doesn't want to be offended by anything uh, will (laughs) find things to be offended by if they read Bernard DeVoto. Um, But the other thing that that happened to him, which Wallace Stegner also related to, was, you know, especially in their time, they felt that being writers who um, had been reared in the West and who wrote about the West – they both felt that they were kind of dismissed by uh, critics in, you know, publishing capitals like New York City uh, for being just regional writers, for, for writing about a part of the country that didn't matter as much as other parts of the country. So I think that that combination of sort of being unfairly pigeonholed as just a regional writer and also for just, you know, stating opinions that, you know, so many opinions so strongly stated that uh, – you know, he's hard for anybody with uh, sort of polarized political positions to fully embrace. I think those two things um, conspired to um, make him, you know, uh, unfortunately not as well known today as he should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this particular history, Bernard and Avis mm-hmm. DeVoto and the Forgotten Fight to Save the Wild, uh, I hadn't known about this. Uh, how did you, how did you encounter this? Well, I 
grew up in Missoula, Montana, and um, have always been interested in public lands. And I began reading Bernard DeVoto just to learn more about public lands. And he wrote in um, Harper's Magazine in 1947 about uh, taking a trip uh, bringing his family, taking them on the Lewis and Clark Trail from their home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, all the way to the Pacific Ocean, visiting national parks along the way so that he could write about public lands conservation. And on this journey that he took in 1946, he picked up clues that there was going to be a political program put together to sell off as many as 230 million acres of America's public lands. And that was approximately you know, equivalent to everything that Theodore Roosevelt had protected. So Bernard managed, Bernard and Avis together managed to get all the details. They transformed into investigative journalists on this trip, and they got all the details of this program that was being worked up, and they exposed them in, the, in an issue of Harper's Magazine in 1947. So I, when I learned that, that made me curious. I wanted to know the backstory behind that. And so as I started just, you know, thinking it might be like a magazine article for a historical journal or something like that, the more I learned about the Devotos, the more I learned about that story, and the more I learned all the things that spun off from it, the more fascinating the story became to me, and it just kind of kept growing bigger and bigger and bigger until I made it into a book. Yeah, it is fascinating history. A lot of parallels to today as well, right? So yeah. We'll get into those. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was... It was um, it was fascinating to be working on the book, you know, over these past, you know, five, six years. Um, you know, in the book, I write about a movement that started in the West in the 1940s to sell off public lands. There was just another movement in the West to sell off public lands. I was writing about uh, Bernard and Avis DeVoto fighting to save a national monument in Utah on the border of Utah and Colorado, Dinosaur National Monument. Um, you know, in the last few years, uh, there were such great battles over two national monuments in Utah, Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante. So there were a lot of parallels between the history from the 40s and the early 50s and the history of, of the last few years. A little bit of a parallel, uh, you know, don't want to lean too much on this, between you know, Bernard DeVoto and, and yourself, right? You're a Western boy, ended up in the East. <laughs> he, he's an well, Ogden boy, ended up in Cambridge. <laughs> Yeah, that, 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 that's kind of you to note. Uh, you know, I did grow up in Montana, and I now live in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I think my, my pat answer to that uh, astute observation would be that between Bernard DeVoto and I, despite any similarities, only one of us is a genius, and unfortunately, Tom, you are not talking to him. <laughs> That's right. That's right, yeah. <laughs> um, so tell me a, a bit about, you know, Bernard DeVoto, quite very well-known, very prominent, uh, Avis as well in, in their time, uh, yeah. n- not as well-remembered now. Uh, it's, tell me about Bernard DeVoto, first of all, the, the man, then we'll maybe talk about the writer, and we'll get into Avis as well. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Bernard was born in Ogden, Utah in 1897, and he was uh, just astoundingly smart. You know, he was reading Homer, um, you know, when he was still in single digits. And, you know, uh, because he was so fascinated with books and literature, he ended up going to Harvard University. Um, because he was so controversially opinionated, he never really fit in in Ogden. He certainly never fit in 
at Harvard. Um, he was going to be a teacher at Harvard, but Harvard let him know they were not interested in that. But he really found his voice. He thought he was going to be a great novelist. He didn't write very good novels, but he really found his voice writing nonfiction about the West. And because he had such a talent for for controversy and for stating opinions, in 1935 he got, he was hired by Harper's Magazine to write a monthly column. And it was in, it was via that column that he really did so much of his conservation journalism. So. He really became an expert. You know, even, you know, it's, it's interesting because Wallace Stegner would, you know, one day have the name the Dean of Western Writers. But, you know, really the person who was the Dean of Western Writers, the person who mentored Stegner was, was Bernard DeVoto. And this is interesting. This is, uh, this is a man from the West who, uh, who's <laughs> living in the East. I, get, I don't know if you need that uh, distance to, to, to see, see it clearly. That, that's a, it's a fascinating observation. Yeah, I think it, it gave Bernard DeVoto both perspectives, and he was able to draw connections between the interrelationship between the West and the East, and especially as it related to public lands. You know, he, he had the observation that, you know, Western history could really be told as sort of a series of natural resource raids. There was, you know, there were fur trappers and there were gold miners and there were cattle grazers and there were farmers and there were loggers. And each of these successive uh, natural resource raids um, served to funnel wealth, natural resource wealth, from the West to the East. Um, And then it was, you know, public lands, which were, uh, put in place predominantly by both presidents Roosevelt, Theodore, and Franklin, that sort of stopped that process of plunder and monopolization by setting aside chunks of land for multiple use with the uh, with the intention of keeping Western natural resource wealth in the West. So that's the that's the prism through which Bernard saw it. So he was able to see how the West and the East. Uh, were interdependent on each other, and he was able to write about it. Hmm. Uh, if, if our listeners have not read Bernard DeVoto, uh, where should they start? Across the Wide Missouri? Oh, what, uh, what yeah, book across, to... across the Wide Missouri won a Pulitzer Prize in 1948. He wrote, you know, he's, he's most well-known for a trilogy of Western nonfiction books. Um, one was called The Year of Decision, 1846. Um, Then the next one he wrote after that, he sort of wrote in reverse chronological order. He wrote a great uh, book about the fur trade, about the the heyday of the Rocky Mountain fur trapping era. That was across the wide Missouri. And in the early 50s, he wrote a book called The Course of Empire, which is about the hunt, the multi-century hunt for the Northwest Passage leading up to the Lewis and Clark expedition. And that book won a National Book Award. So that, that's really sort of the pinnacle of his, of his book writing career. Mm-hmm. What did he, uh, you know, the Pulitzer Prize, uh, these were groundbreaking books. What, what did he bring to it, do you think? What, uh, what was in those books that so captured people's imagination? Well, just because he was such a strong and vivid writer, he wrote incredibly cinematically. So, you know, people reading these books, you know, he would get fan letters from people reading these books and they would say things to him like, you know, I could, I could smell the dust and I could see the blood and I could feel the wind and I could, you know, I could almost reach down and, and drink from the rivers that you wrote about. So he wrote very 
you know, very cinematically with great detail. And, you know, he also wrote with, um, uh, you know, a lot of swagger. And he wrote with, you know, he was an opinionated writer. So even when he was writing history, he helped guide readers. And, you know, he was not afraid to say, you know, this person made a brilliant decision and this person made a stupid decision. So it really heightened the, um, you know, the emotional experience of reading history. That's, he really brought passion and energy to history. Uh, what's it like reading him uh, today? Is he dated at all? Do you, do you enjoy the books? I think I think his histories are wonderful. There are certain, you know, he was a man of his era, and uh, you know, he was a man of the 1940s and the 1950s. So certainly, a lot of the things that 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 you know Bernard Devoto wrote then don't read as well today. But a lot of the things that Bernard Devoto wrote back then read just as powerfully today, especially his writings about conservation. I, I say that. You know, and I stand by it, you know, a lot of Bernard DeVoto's uh, conservation writings read like they could be, you know, read like they were written for tomorrow's newspaper. They're just, they're that insightful and that prescient. Mm. Uh, in some cases, uh, unfortunately so, right? We we wish we have, would have moved a, uh, yeah. past some of these conflicts. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, you know, I... Uh, um, I, you know, it would be it would be fascinating to hear his thoughts about, uh, you know, renewed movements to sell off public lands and uh, attempts to uh, dismantle national monuments in Utah. Those were those were battles that he fought in the 1940s and 1950s. And uh, I, I'm sure hopes uh, had been had been settled for all time. Mm. You mentioned his uh, his monthly column at Harper's, right? Easy Chair. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. which is an interesting title for, for, for what, for what was in, for what was in the columns, right? Um, uh, yeah. by the way, can you, I don't know, there's a, is there a collection? Can you, can you read these? There, yeah, there's, there's two good, uh, compilation books of Bernard DeVoto's, um, um, conservation columns. One is a book called DeVoto's West, um, and, you, you know, uh, listeners can Google that. One is called Devoto's West. Another one is called The Western Paradox. Um, when Bernard Devoto died in 1955, he was at work on another nonfiction book about the West. He was going to call it The Western Paradox. Um, generally, he, write, he liked to write uh, two and three drafts of his books before publication. He was part way through the first draft of the Western Paradox. So about 20, 22 years ago, um, historians uh, Douglas Brinkley and uh, Patricia Limerick uh, put out the Western Paradox, and they included in that a bunch of his uh, conservation columns for Harper's Magazine. So those, those are two places to find, you know, straight devoto. So he was very influential uh, through this column, I think. Right, widely read. What what sorts of? Very. Of course, he wrote about yeah. conservation here, but what what other sorts of things did he write about? Well, you know, one of the, it's fascinating to to read back those columns uh, because you know he wrote he was he could write about anything. That's why he took the job because he was he had such forceful opinions. He was excited to be able to share them. The Easy Chair column goes back to the 1850s. It's the oldest. Uh, continuous editorial feature in American journalism. So it has lots of gravitas. People like John F. Kennedy liked to read Harper's Magazine, liked to read The Easy Chair. So he knew it had an influential readership. And 
you know, and so he would write whatever was on his mind, but by the late 40s and the early 1950s, it's fascinating to look back on those columns because they, a lot of times they alternated month to month. This was the McCarthy era. This was the era of the Red Scare. So one month, Bernard DeVoto would write in defense of conservation. The next month, he would write in criticism of McCarthyism. And so, especially toward the end of his life, those were the, those were the two things. And really, he saw them as conjoined. You know, he saw them as about freedom, as about freedom of movement and about freedom of thought. And so, you know, his columns would alternate conservation and against McCarthyism. Before we go to break, I want to follow up immediately on that. Uh, freedom of movement, freedom of thought, he, he, uh, he, he joined those two ideas. Yeah, I mean, he, he very much saw a spiritual connection in America. You know, he was a great patriot, and he thought that these uh, ideals of the founding fathers, this idea of equality and liberty and freedom, these things that were enshrined in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, that, you know, the, the raw ingredients that went into that, the, the natural environment that the first Americans and indigenous Americans, the, 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 the natural environment that these people encountered that birthed these ideas about democracy, that came from the American wilderness. And that made him a defender of the American wilderness, because in wilderness, humans can move around freely, and they can also, as we learned with the American Revolution, they can also think freely. So he saw um, attempts to harm public lands and the McCarthy era, he saw them both as conjoined threat, uh, threats to, to those original American ideals. If you just joined us uh, here at Access Utah, we're talking with uh, journalist Nate Schweber. Uh, he is author most recently, uh, today I believe is publication date, right? Um, yeah, mm-hmm, of, today. Mm-hmm. Of interesting new book, This America of Ours. The title subtitle is Bernard and Avis DeVoto and the Forgotten Fight to Save the Wild. Uh, by the way, uh, Nate Schweber, following break, I want to uh, talk about Avis. And on that, that previous program in March, we talked all about Bernard DeVoto, and then I, I got a, a note from a listener saying, hey, what about Avis? She was very prominent oh, in her own right. fascinating. So. Yeah, she is just as fascinating as Bernard DeVoto, if not more. I, I can't wait to talk about her. Yeah, great. So that'll, be, that'll follow a break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with journalist Nate Schweber. Uh, he has been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. He's won uh, awards from the Outdoor Writers Association of America. Uh, he's appeared in today's CNN, WNYC, lives in Brooklyn. His newest book uh, out today is This America of Ours, Bernard and Avis DeVoto and the Forgotten Fight to Save the Wild. Some fascinating history here. So uh, before the break... Nate Schweber, we talked uh, quite a bit about Bernard DeVoto, uh, and for those who don't know or have forgotten, he's he's from Ogden, so he's a Utah yeah. boy. Um, so uh, we want to uh, learn about Avis DeVoto, Avis McVicker, who, uh, who met and married Bernard DeVoto. Tell me about Avis. Well, Avis DeVoto, much to her, I'm sure would have been her great surprise, is probably the best-known DeVoto today. Um, and, uh, she is, uh, she has been portrayed in, uh, a movie. She is being portrayed on a TV show right now. The reason that, um, Avis DeVoto is so relatively well known is because her best friend, 
uh, was Julia Child, the famous French chef. And it was actually Avis who, um, who made Julia Child a star. So uh, there's, a, there's a bit where uh, um, Deborah Rush plays Avis in the um, 2009 movie Julie and Julia. Um, Avis is being played right now by uh, B.B. Newworth in the HBO Max series Julia. So Avis DeVoto is, is, you know, fairly well known in pop culture, which is something that she never envisioned because she, she, she was an extraordinarily private person. She um, hated attention. She, she shunned the limelight. She was a person who had an incredible talent for partnering with, uh, with big personalities, with big literary personalities. Uh, you know, Bernard DeVoto, whom she married in 1923. Uh, she was his editor, his proofreader, his fact checker, his indexer. She answered his mail. And in addition to that, she bore their two sons. She kept up the house. And she was always, since she was a little girl, she was also always fascinated with food and with cooking and with food culture. Um, so in 1952, Bernard DeVoto got a fan letter from a then aspiring cookbook author living in Paris, Julia Child, and Avis wrote Julia back and they became best friends. And Avis basically said to Julia Child, uh, you know, through Bernard, I know everybody in publishing. I can get you a book deal. And she ended up doing that. But her relationship with Julia Child was in a lot of ways similar to her relationship with Bernard DeVoto. Uh, she was Julia's editor and fact checker and proofreader and indexer and co-idea generator. So Avis really had a amazing talent for bringing out the best in writers in her life. That's uh, that's amazing. You've uh, I think in your Twitter account you, uh, you talked about uh, th- this book being kind of a Forrest Gump thing. You you, <laughs> you <laughs> well, that, that, <laughs> Bernard and Avis are a everywhere. Kind, a kind reviewer on Goodreads well, that, oh, I pointed see. Yes. that out, yeah. and I, I thought that I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, that he said it was it was like a Forrest Gump story, yeah, which I thought was great. Yeah. Um, you you couldn't make this up, right? Um, this, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Truth is truth is stranger than fiction. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit more about this this uh, partnership. It was important to both of them, right? Uh, Bernard and, and Avis. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the things I learned when researching the book is, you know, especially as a young man, um, uh, you know, Bernard went through some some really um, some really blue times. Um, you know, he. Um, he he admitted that he had thought about suicide, that he went through some pretty rough depressions. And, you know, by his own writing, he said it was Avis who got him through those times. She really uh, centered him and grounded him and stabilized him. So, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not an exaggeration at all to say that, you know, without Avis DeVoto, there never would have been a Bernard DeVoto, and that everything that he has been credited for from his Pulitzer to his National Book Award to his incredible conservation work. She was co-equal in, the, in those accomplishments. He could never have done them without her. She was right beside him as he was doing it. She was a, a, a co-equal uh, part of that team. 
The, your picture of her uh, after Bernard's death is really yeah. s- sticks with me. Uh, you have yeah. this this mental picture of her. She, apparently, she'd uh, she'd just uh, cross traffic whenever she wanted to with her cane. You say she she pointed <laughs> yeah. at traffic and they would part like the Red Sea. <laughs> that's that's. That, I'm, I'm glad you liked that. But yeah, one of the uh, one of the fun parts of doing the research for this book was that I went up to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and uh, and I talked to people that knew Avis Devoto. I talked to friends of hers. I talked to her son, Mark, and I, I, I talked to some of her neighbors, and, you know, they painted this this wonderfully vivid uh, description for me, you know, this, this very almost regal woman who, just like Bernard Devoto, had very strong opinions, had a very sharp wit, had a very powerful sense of humor and yeah did things like that you know and when she wanted to cross the street she would cross the street she wore uh very bright red shockingly red lipstick all her life so she was she was really a character Mm. she continued to be influential even after bernard's death right uh in in many circles yeah you know i mean one of the things that that i sort of realized when working on this book was that you know Bernard DeVoto in her life was both her romantic partner, but also her professional partner. And, you know, um, and, and she was just ripped apart when he died. Um, you know, she never did fall in love again. Um, that, that part of her life, you know, the romantic part, that, that ended when Bernard died. But the professional part of her life, she was able to find a new professional partner in Julia Child. And even down to, like, you know, uh, Avis would answer letters that people wrote to Bernard DeVoto. Avis was the person whom Julia Child um, allowed to answer her fan letters to. So the same role that she played for Bernard DeVoto, she also played for Julia Child. And as as you're saying here, she was very important in Julia Child's uh, career uh, over a long period of time. Yeah, she got Julia Child, you know, she was the she was the person to get Julia Child her first book contract in not early 1953 and this you know the story of that book contract has been dramatized in that movie Julia and Julia and in other books but um basically there came a point in the late 1950s when that first book contract fell through and Avis had to do some just incredible charming, wonderful, smart, amazingly intelligent work to get her another book contract with Knopf. And that was the company that put out Julia's, you know, first masterwork, Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Avis was the person that made those deals happen. Mm. Well, let's get into some of this, uh, this history, particular history in the in the book. Um, the subtitle, Bernard and Avis Devoto and the Forgotten Fight to Save the Wild. The title is This America of Ours. Nate Schweber is the author. We're talking about Bernard and Avis uh, Devoto. By the way, This America of Ours, What? Uh, why did you select that as the title? That's actually a quote from Bernard Devoto. And one of the big environmental fights that I write about was this. There were plans in the... Uh, early 1950s to build dams on the Green River inside Dinosaur National Monument, um, right there on the border of Utah and Colorado. And um, this, this was a continuation of the public land fight that Bernard DeVoto took up in the mid-1940s. And 
he gave an interview, um, I think, to a newspaper in San Francisco. But he, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, but he, you know, he had a, a very poignant quote where he said, um, you know, I, I really wonder uh, what will we do when our wilderness is gone in uh, a hundred years from now. How will anybody know what wonders there were in this America of ours? And that was really one of one of the one of the first great statements that would eventually congeal into the Wilderness Act of 1964. So that was that was Bernard Devoto talking about the American wilderness. Let's go back to you made reference to this earlier uh, in the program. Uh, Bernard and Avis are taking a road trip, Lewis and Clark Trail, right? <laughs> Yeah, 1946. Um, and and again, you can't make this up. Uh, along the along this, I guess this is a family trip, but it turns yeah. into investigative journalism. Um, tell me about this. Yeah. It's it's a it's a charming story. Uh, through World War II, Bernard served stateside, just like he had in World War One. He was waiting for gasoline rationing to end, so he could take this trip west. He was researching a book that would turn into the course of empire. So he wanted to follow Lewis and Clark's trail. And he got to the Dakotas, and he began to think there was, there were, there was maybe something bad about to happen in the West. He was really outraged to see a dam being built on the Missouri River that was going to flood out um, uh, around 150,000 acres of the homelands of the Mandan, Hadatsa, and Arikara nations. And he knew from history that this type of mass Native American dispossession went hand-in-hand with some of the biggest public land frauds, public land scams in American history. So he had the good judgment to be on the lookout for signs of something else. And it was in the the Range Riders Cafe in Miles City, Montana, that he eavesdropped on a, quote, very loud, very drunk cattleman at the bar that he learned that there was going to be an attack on the U.S. Forest Service and the National Park Service. So the Devotos, both Bernard and Avis, they decided that if they could somehow figure out the exact details of this plot, he could print it in Harper's Magazine. He could expose it and hopefully thwart it. So their trip along the Lewis and Clark Trail in which they're visiting these great Western national parks, they also started networking. So they met with journalist Joseph Kinsey Howard in Great Falls, Montana. Joseph Kinsey Howard wrote a wonderful book called Montana, High, Wide, and Handsome. In Yosemite National Park, they met with Ansel Adams. Um, he taught them to look at public lands through his eyes. They met with Wallace Stegner. Um, they were asking everybody they met if they knew any of these details. And he actually got, the Devotos got their big break in Ogden, Utah. They met with a forest, uh, a forester, um, a Forest Service supervisor, a guy named Chet Olson. And not to give too much away, but Chet Olson knew about a secret meeting that was going to happen with some of the West largest livestock associations in Salt Lake City. And at that meeting, there was produced a transcript. And in that transcript was every single detail about this plan that Bernard DeVoto started guessing about back in the Dakotas. And Chet Olson was able to get a copy of this transcript to Bernard DeVoto, and he put it in Harper's Magazine in the January 1947 issue. He titled the article, The West Against Itself. 
and that exposed this plot that he called the land grab, and it ended up thwarting it. Uh, tell me about uh, Senator McCarran, the Nevada senator, who's uh, sort of the, uh, I guess, the, the leading figure on uh, on the, uh, in your book, uh, he's the villain. Yeah, so. he, yeah he, well, he, yeah, he's certainly the, the antagonist to the Devoto's protagonist. Um, Nevada Senator Pat McCarran, I mean, he, he had a lot sort of in common with Bernard Devoto. He was also from the Great Basin. He was born just outside of Reno. He was very smart. He was very ambitious. His ambitions took him to a career also in the Northeast, in Washington, D.C. He became a senator. Um, He was a guy who Harry Truman uh, observed was, quote, always for something when he could get his hand in the money barrel. So McCarran was very corrupt. Um, He was also incredibly xenophobic. And he really um, was the guy that, that created the legal underpinnings of McCarthyism. He was a great ally of Joe McCarthy's. Joe McCarthy was great at getting attention. He was not a great legislator. Pat McCarran was a master parliamentarian, so they worked wonderfully together. Joe McCarthy would get attention. He would create the national atmosphere. He would affect the culture in America, and Pat McCarran would write the laws. So um, Pat McCarran was the force behind these, you know, what Bernard DeVoto called the land grab. He just wanted, you know, he wanted to give Western land and natural resources on Western land. He wanted to funnel those to his cronies. He wanted to give them away to special interests. So behind Behind everything that Bernard DeVoto was exposing and criticizing from these plots against public lands to McCarthyism, Pat McCarran was always behind it. Mm. Uh, so uh, a, a big attempt. Privatize what? How much of the public lands? All of it? Well, the, the, well, nearly all of it. I mean, you know, Theodore Roosevelt gave America its public lands legacy. Theodore Roosevelt uh, put under conservation protection around 230 million acres of public lands. In the 1940s, this land grab plot that Bernard DeVoto uh, discovered and exposed, that would be to get rid of and liquidate around 230 million acres of public lands. The plan was to take all the acres under the jurisdiction of the Bureau of Land Management transfer those to states and sell them off, and then go into the national forest and take about 75% of the acres under the jurisdiction of the National Forest Service, do the same thing, transfer those to states and sell them off, and then repeat the process inside of national monuments and national parks. Uh, so the Devotos uncovered this uh, plan. What was their uh, response? Obviously, publish about it, right? Expose it, mm-hmm. but but uh, but what else? I think they assembled prominent figures to to start fighting against this. Yeah, I mean they they brought it to national attention. You know, the Bureau of Land Management was created in 1946. This was when Bernard Devoto came to its rescue. It was in 1946. Hardly anybody in America outside the West. Uh, even knew what the Bureau of Land Management was. Bernard, the Devotos were really the right people in the right place at the right time. They were in the West. 
They knew the history of public lands. They knew the value of public lands, and they were wonderful communicators. So they happened to be there. They were paying attention. Um, and so, you know, they were able to, they were able to, to figure this out and let people in America know. And they got one, you know, they got letters, all these wonderful letters from Westerners saying, thank you for what you said. And, you know, they, they did, they started to build a coalition, um, you know, cause Bernard, he, you know, they, they continued living in Cambridge, but he could follow things happening around the West because he had this wonderful network of people that would talk to him. He had Olaf and Marty Neary, who were naturalists in uh, Wyoming, he had a guy named uh, Arthur Carhart, a wonderful big game hunter and wilderness advocate in Colorado. He had Ansel Adams in California. He had Chet Olson in Utah. He had Wallace Stegner. He had um, Horace Albright, uh, one-time director of the National Park Service. And, you know, as, 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 as he brought attention to public lands and to the environment, um, he started to influence other people, and other people started to um, – you know, do uh, reading, research and writing influenced by Bernard DeVoto, like uh, naturalist Aldo Leopold. Um, uh, I mentioned Ansel Adams. Um, and eventually uh, uh, the presidential candidate, Adley Stevenson, reached out to Bernard DeVoto to, to advise him about conservation and public lands. Uh, Alfred Knopf, Knopf, the publisher, um, he reached out to Bernard DeVoto and asked, you know, what he could publish to help uh, you know, to help with the cause of conservation. So they really did build this, uh, this wonderful network and this wonderful community, this wonderful coalition. They put that together. I'm wondering what uh, the, the average person uh, would have known about public lands or even thought about it. It, it occurs to me that uh, myself, growing up in Utah, I, I just yeah. live in this world. Um, whatever you think about public lands, uh, you know, I know about public lands. I know, I know it's a big deal, <laughs> right? But, but that's me and my time. What about uh, folks in the 1940s? Yeah, I mean, not. I mean, it's 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 similar to now, and what you describe about growing up in Utah is like me growing up in Montana, just surrounded by them and being aware of them. Um, but um, you know, not a lot of people in in uh, in mid 1940s America knew about public lands beyond the marquee public lands, beyond the national parks, and I think that's still fairly common today. People are certainly aware of national parks, but they um, are possibly less aware of, of the diversity and the breadth and the scope and the value of public lands that are not national parks, but are also a vital part of conservation in America and a part of that just, you know, commonwealth that we as citizens all share. And these are national forest lands and wildlife refugees. And then you know, the Bureau of Land Management, all the acres under, under the BLM's jurisdiction. This is all part of a, of a magnificent tapestry across America, especially in the West, that every citizen has a stake in. You point out that, uh, you know, you get all these public figures, and that's, that's got to be powerful, but uh, you say especially effective Bernard DeVoto reached out to uh, deficit hawks. He, he, he made some economic arguments. Yeah, you know, Bernard DeVoto was a guy who, you know, to people who considered themselves uh, right-wing, he was far too left-wing. And to people who considered themselves left-wing, he was far too right-wing. So, um, 
you know, the, this coalition that he built when he was trying to stop these dams from being built inside Dinosaur National Monument. And by the way, the reason that these dams were so critical wasn't just because they would have destroyed Dinosaur National Monument, but because they would have set a precedent for building dams in national parkland. And there were plans that were ready to go to build dams in other national park units, including the Grand Canyon and Yellowstone and Glacier and Kings Canyon and Mammoth Cave and others. So this was he was not only fighting these specific dams in Dinosaur National Monument, he was fighting a precedent. And you know, he was able to build a coalition of of people that loved national parks, of people who loved the outdoors. He was able to build that coalition, but that coalition just didn't have the political strength to, um, you know, to stop, uh, you know, the members of Congress who <laughs> wanted these dams built. But he was able to bring into that coalition deficit hawks. And these were people that were, you know, a lot more um, conservative or would identify as a lot more conservative than a lot of the people in Bernard DeVoto's coalition. But the thing that they had in common was they didn't want these dams built. The environmentalists didn't want the dams built because it would have destroyed this magnificent piece of Western scenery. And the deficit hawks did not want the dams built because they would have blown up the federal debt. And it was by bringing those two strange bedfellows together into a coalition that the devotos were able to be such powerful battlers in the cause of conservation. Well, let's take another break. Uh, we're uh, talking with Nate Schweber. Uh, he's an award-winning journalist, and his uh, new book is out today, This America of Ours, Bernard and Avis Devoto and the Forgotten Fight to Save the Wild. Um, and following the break, I want to uh, want to hear about the pushback. Uh, these, you know, powerful forces, Senator McCarran, Senator mm-hmm. McCarthy, um, mm-hmm. Bernard Davis, and their coalition are quite successful. Uh, there, there is this pushback very typical of the times uh, in the forties mm-hmm. and fifties, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Accusations of communism uh, and yeah. and such. Uh, let's talk about that following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have about uh, seven minutes left in our conversation with Nate Schweber. Uh, his uh, new book's out today, This America of Ours, Bernard and Avis Devoto and the Forgotten Fight to Save the World. That's out and available. Very interesting book. So, Nate Schweber, um, th- this uh, campaign by Bernard and Avis Devoto, very successful. Um, there's You could predict there'd be pushback. Uh, mm-hmm. Senator McCarran uh, is is allied with Senator McCarthy, as you've said. Uh, yeah. w- what form did the, the pushback take? Well, um, so you know, in the night in the late 1940s, uh, the Devotos found out about this plan that would be shepherded by Senator McCarran on behalf of some of the West's biggest livestock associations to sell off hundreds of millions of acres of public lands, and after the Devotos uh, exposed that plot, it was fascinating doing the research for this book, because in some of these livestock associations, in their, in their newsletters, um, they started to write insinuations that Bernard Devoto was a communist. And just for point of reference, you know, in the 1930s, when uh, the United States swung very far to the left in reaction to the Depression, and 
socialist candidates for public office and actual communist candidates for public office got millions of votes across America. Bernard DeVoto was writing in Harper's Magazine that anybody who followed Marxism was an idiot. So he was a very anti-communist writer. But in the 1940s, after he exposed this plot to sell off public lands, um, some of these livestock associations started printing insinuations in their in their newsletters that he was a communist. And some of those got sent to J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI, who began keeping an extensive file on Bernard DeVoto. And it eventually climaxed. Um, a Democratic presidential candidate, Adlai Stevenson, uh, who ran for the first time in 1952 for president. Bernard was his conservation and public lands advisor. And uh, Joe McCarthy attacked Bernard DeVoto repeatedly on national TV and also on national radio broadcasts. And, you know, McCarthy did to Bernard DeVoto what McCarthy did. You know, he, he to avoid being sued for libel, he didn't come straight out and say Bernard DeVoto is a communist, but he questioned Bernard DeVoto's loyalty, and he smeared DeVoto, and he really put into the public's mind that Bernard DeVoto was a communist. And uh, I think he attacked uh, Bernard DeVoto's livelihood, right? Uh, he, he tried to attack Correct. magazines that Bernard DeVoto published for. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Uh, Joe McCarthy would attack these magazines that published Bernard DeVoto, and Bernard began getting blacklisted. Um, Bernard DeVoto wrote a very famous article in 1950 in defense of Dinosaur National Monument. It was titled, Shall We Let Them Ruin Our National Parks? He put it into the Saturday Evening Post, which was the largest read magazine of its era, and McCarthy attacked that magazine, and they stopped. They told Bernard they would never again publish anything that he wrote about the West or about conservation. So, yeah, I mean, because of Joe McCarthy, um, Bernard DeVoto got his microphone cut right when he was addressing his largest ever audience about conservation. Um, but he also, you know, it was bad for the family because Bernard's writing was what kept a roof over their head. The charming tie around is that um, you know, thankfully the DeVotos had each other. Bernard had Avis. And in compensation for his getting blacklisted from these big magazines, he started working with Avis more closely than ever before to brainstorm new types of stories that they could produce together that would reach different audiences. And so it was Avis that recommended that Bernard write about kitchen knives for Harper's Magazine, which he did. And it was that article that got him the fan letter from Julia Child. So that friendship between Avis DeVoto and Julia Child, it's been celebrated in nonfiction books and in a movie and on a TV show. It's very well known. But what isn't as well known is that, you know, that friendship germinated inside this fight for the national parks against Joe McCarthy that the DeVotos waged together. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating history. We just have a couple of minutes left in the conversation. I wonder what uh, lessons you take. Uh, we've talked about a lot of parallels. What lessons do you think we take from this story? Oh, wow, that's a great question. I mean, I, hmm. um, you know, I, I, I think it just shows the, 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 the power of being well-informed and paying attention and speaking out and also reaching out. You know, the, 
I thought it was, you know, just it, somebody following the story. I was, I was constantly impressed with um, how resourceful the devotos were, how willing they were to work with people who they didn't always agree with, and how, uh, you know, constantly they, um, they, they spoke out for what they believed was right. Anytime, you know, they heard something that wasn't true, they spoke out about it. And, um, and you know, they, they certainly suffered a lot in their lifetimes, but I think that our lifetimes, um, still having this public lands legacy and also legacies of things like the Bill of Rights, uh, I think that our lives are tremendously better uh, for them having done what they did. Well, it's fascinating history, uh, well worth the read. The, the, today's publication date, uh, Nate Schreber mm-hmm. is award-winning journalist, and his new book is out. This America of Ours, Bernard and Avis DeVoto and their Forgotten Fight to Save the Wild. Uh, Nate Schreber, thank you so much for taking the hour with us. Tom, it's been such a, a pleasure and a privilege to talk with you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today.